All right. Oh, so dang. Okay. <laughs> I'm doing something a little different. I'm using the the not boom mic, but yeah. So yeah. But uh, how's everybody doing? Say yeah. yeah. Good to see you guys. Good morning and welcome again to the in-person slash virtual worship service of the Midpoint Ministry Center of the Chicago Church of Christ. Uh, if this is your first time joining us in worship, we as a family of Christians, we do welcome you and appreciate your attendance this morning. Shout out to Ron, who I've had in the back. And so he came from downtown, well, the Chicago area. So grateful that you're here. Also, if this is your first time joining us in worship, we as the Midpoint Ministry Center are in the middle of a sermon series titled You Are Here. Let me get my clicker here. There you go. You are here. And what we're doing is looking at the bigger story from Scripture of how God has acted in the world, the ways in which God continues to act in this world and our place in it. And throughout the sermon series, we've been looking at key narratives from the Bible, many of which you are familiar with that tell the grand story of God and his dealings with mankind since the very beginning. Up to this point, we've covered a lot of key narratives. We looked at stories surrounding Adam and Eve, Abraham and Moses. We've looked at some of the wisdom literature. We've looked at the most significant but almost subliminal transition point in the Bible, which was the coming out of the period of the, the judges and coming into the period of the kings. Last Sunday, Clint talked about the opening of the temple of God and its purpose. So all in all, we've covered a lot of key narratives, but yet there's so much still to cover, so much still to cover. Furthermore, today, we'll begin highlighting some of the major Old Testament prophets of the Bible, prophets such as Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Malachi, just to name a few. And when it comes to the next few upcoming sermons that, that I'll be highlighting, we'll be looking at just, like I said, the, the major Old Testament prophets of the Bible. I couldn't think of a better title to name the next upcoming sermons than this. Prophets don't take no mess. <laughs> prophets don't take no mess, right? Now, for, for you older generations, you understand that prophets don't take no mess is a playoff the old James Brown song. Papa don't take no mess. And if you younger generation have never listened to the song, go listen to the song. It's a great song. Papa don't take no mess. Papa don't. I won't sing it. But yes, it's a great song. <laughs> Nevertheless, prophets don't take no mess to me is a great overarching title for the next few upcoming sermons, because all of the Old Testament prophets that we'll be looking at didn't take no mess. They didn't take no mess. You know, Old Testament prophets such as Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Malachi were people who were bold and undaunted. You know, they were truth tellers who were tasked with not telling their truth, as today's young people, you know, young generation likes to say. Rather, they were tasked with telling God's truth. You know, the Hebrew word that translates into our English word prophet is the word Navi which comes from the term Niv Sephatim, which means fruit of the lips. This word correctly communicates a prophet's role, which was to essentially be a speaker or a spokesperson for someone. You know, according to Deuteronomy 18, verse 18 from the Bible, God spoke concerning the role of a Navi or a prophet uh, when speaking to Moses, saying, I will raise up a prophet like you, to which God right here, he's recognizing Moses himself as being a prophet. From among their fellow Israelites, I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell the people everything I command him. So to God, the un unequivocal role of a prophet whom himself he would raise up was to be his mouthpiece. You know, the role of a prophet of God was to be God's spokesperson to people. And all throughout the Old Testament, we can read about how God used prophets, whether through writing or speaking to communicate his mind, his heart and his will to people. God chose men, he chose women, he chose even Gentiles to convey his mind, heart, and will to people. 
You know, prophets served as God's megaphones, declaring whatever God commanded them to say. And one of the great prophets who served as God's megaphone, declaring whatever God commanded him to say was Elijah. And this morning we'll be looking at a relatively well-known story from the Old Testament book of the Bible involving Elijah. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. First Kings chapter 18, and uh, the title of my sermon this morning is Know That the Lord is God, Part 1, okay? And I'm calling this sermon Know That the Lord is God, Part 1, because I wasn't able to figure out how to cover all that I wanted to cover from this story in just one sermon. So this story, it spans for about four chapters. So to be honest, I don't know, if I'll, I don't know when I'll get a chance to preach Part 2, Part 2, I don't know. But for the sake of time, here's Part 1, okay? <laughs> so here's Part 1. So starting off in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 16 through 17, it reads, Ahab went uh, to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? First and foremost, I want to provide a bit of gra uh, background information that will help us to understand the situation that's about to unfold. So in this verse, we meet our two main characters, King Ahab and the prophet Elijah. Firstly, we've got King Ahab. About a hundred years had passed in the kingdom of Israel's history since the time of King David, who during his reign as king had set, up, set, had set high standards of faithfulness and integrity when it came to worshiping and serving the one true God. Now a wicked king named Ahab ruled the kingdom of Israel. And King Ahab wasn't related to or connected to King David or King Solomon in any way. That's because the old kingdom of Israel had actually split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which was made up of the ten, 10 of the tribes of Israel, was referred to the kingdom of Israel, while the southern kingdom, which was only the remaining two tribes of Israel, was referred to as the kingdom of Judah. So, so in the books of First and Second Kings, we get these parallel histories of the northern kingdom and southern kingdom, which can be confusing at times. Now, there wasn't necessarily a bad kingdom and a good kingdom. Rather, there was a bad kingdom and a worse kingdom. <laughs> Okay, And the northern kingdom was definitely the worst of the two kingdoms. You know, things got bad faster in the northern kingdom, which is the kingdom where our story for today, uh, our story for this morning takes place. The temple of Jerusalem, of which Clint talked about last Sunday, was located in the southern kingdom of Judah. Consequently, the northern kingdom of Israel almost immediately gave themselves over to idolatry. You know why? Because the northern kingdom's first king, whose name was King Jeroboam, immediately situated or not situated, instituted calf worship. You know, he set up some golden calves uh, around the northern kingdom and things got worse for that kingdom spiritually. Furthermore, we are introduced to King Ahab in the Bible. This is here in first Kings chapter 16, verse 33. And this is what it says about him. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord the God of Israel than, all, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. So simply put, King Ahab, he was just the worst king. I mean, there were other kings who were doing stupid stuff, but King Ahab was just the worst. And among the many bad and ill-advised decisions that Ahab had made while he was the king of Israel was this decision to marry an evil pagan woman by the name of Jezebel. All right? So Jezebel, of course, is a name synonymous with evil. You know, so infamous is her name that to this day, almost no one names their baby daughter Jezebel, right? Personally, I've never met a woman named Jezebel. And if I did, I don't know how I'd feel about her. 
But I know that to even call a woman Jezebel is the greatest insult imaginable simply because she was the epitome of an evil and wicked woman. You know, according to the Bible, Jezebel was a, a power hungry murderess who stopped at nothing to get what she wanted and whom was a devout worshiper of Baal. Now, two Sundays ago, Tanner referenced some of the writings of Baal, which spoke to his nature and his character as a god. You know, here's a, a picture of a statue of Baal. You know, Baal was this half bull, half man uh, god, which was widely worshipped by the people all over the world at this time. The word, the word Baal means Lord. In general, Baal was a fertility god who was believed to uh, enable the earth to produce crops and enable people to produce children. Likewise, he was worshipped as the god of rain and storms and lightning and all of those things. Furthermore, to the detriment of the kingdom of Israel, Ahab, the king of Israel at that time, being the weak and self-pitying man that he was, he, he abdicated his authority as the king of Israel to his pagan bride, Jezebel. In other words, he failed to fulfill his role and responsibility as the king for God's people. You know, remember, according to Deuteronomy 17, God gave in his law certain commands for a king of Israel. Reading Deuteronomy 17, verse 18 through 19, God says, when he, referring to any king of Israel, takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of his law and these decrees, and, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites in turn from the law to the right or to the left. So, so this, brothers and sisters, was to be how Ahab acted and what he did as the king of Israel, right here. He was supposed to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all of God's laws. However, Ahab was a derelict in his duty, you know, as the king of Israel, to say the least. And his, and his dereliction of duty was on full display to the kingdom of Israel when he built an altar to Baal. He built an altar for Baal and a temple for Baal at the urging of his queen Jezebel, right in the very heart of Israel's capital city, Samaria. So in spite of God's law forbidding idolatry and the worship of any other God but the Lord God, Ahab, he had set up an altar and a temple for Baal to appease Jezebel and cater to her religious beliefs. Now you would think that King Ahab doing this, erecting an altar for Baal, uh, uh, you know, an altar as well as a temple for Baal to appease Jezebel would be enough. However, Jezebel, she wanted more. She was such a domineering and such a dictatorial person, so much so that, you know, she was that kind of person that she went as far as to mandate that her religion, her belief in Baal should be the, the national religion of all of Israel. That's what she mandated. You know, in other words, forget about your so-called God. You and the people of God should completely turn to the worship of Baal as the Lord God. And to show how serious she was about converting the people of Israel into devout worshipers of Baal as the Lord God. Jezebel went as far as to recruit 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, which was worshipped as the chief goddess and wife of Baal. So she just was all in on trying to convert people to the worship of Baal. So during Ahab's reign as the king of Israel, the people of Israel's faith was being divided concerning worshiping and serving Baal as the Lord God or Yahweh as the Lord God. But I can't put it all on Ahab and his lack of leadership and unfaithfulness because, truth be told, Baal worship had had times become trendy and popular amongst the people of Israel, especially during the time of Judges. From time to time, the people of Israel had given themselves over to the worship of Baal and of Asherah, the chief goddess. So what was God's response to all of this? 
How did God attempt to turn his people's hearts back to him and away from the worship of Baal? God sent the prophet Elijah, whose name in Hebrew means Yahweh is Lord, <laughs> to prophesy to King Ahab. And Elijah prophesied about a drought or that a drought is coming upon the whole land as a consequence for Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Right here in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1 from the Bible, it says, Now Elijah of Tishbit said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there, were neither, there will be neither dew nor rain for the next few years except at my word. In other words, only until I pray for it to rain will it rain. Prophets don't take no mess, right? <laughs> and sure enough, Elijah's prophecy came to pass. The kingdom of Israel went through three years of severe drought. Crops diminished quickly and animals were dying. And all of this, brothers and sisters, came from God. Now, that's not an easy message to hear. But the fact of the matter is that all of this did come from God. You know, this severe drought was a result of God's hand. Why? Because it was punishment for Israel's sins against him, which their greatest sin being the sin of idolatry. You know, and understandably, someone could read about how God punished what was said to be his people with a drought and think, you know, how could God be so unloving? You know, someone might say, I don't believe and feel that a loving God would do such a thing. Well, the Bible makes clear, according to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, the Lord disciplines everyone he loves. He punishes anyone he accepts as a child. And that's what the people of Israel were to God. They were his children whom he loved enough to punish for their sinful behavior in hopes that they would learn to change. Then after more than three years, the Lord tells Elijah, okay, go, your sh go show yourself to Ahab because God is ready to send rain on the land. Again, the drought had gotten so bad. I mean, it was so bad that even the king, King Ahab, he was wandering around the land trying to find grass for his mules and his horses. The king was having to do that. So again, reading 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 16 through 18, it reads, Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for you is, uh, for Israel, Elijah replied. But you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. So here's when King Ahab and Elijah are meeting for the first time since Elijah prophesied to the king that a drought was going to occur for the next few years. And the first thing that came out of Ahab's mouth to Elijah was, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Ahab's response to Elijah was him completely pointing the finger at him as far as being the problem. However, Elijah makes it clear to Ahab that you're the problem, man. <laughs> you know, you created this mess for Israel when you and your father's family chose to wander away from worshiping the one true God and go and worship Baal. You think I'm the problem. You think you think I'm your problem, Ahab. And you think I'm the reason for this drought. <laughs> Open your eyes, Ahab, because the real problem is between you and Yahweh. Ahab was in sin against God, but he wasn't taking any responsibility for his sin. And his response, brothers and sisters, can be true of us as Christians sometimes when we are in sin against God, right? You know, like Ahab, rebellion against God and his ways can begin to rule in our hearts. And our rebellion against God begins to overtake the way we think and how we feel and how we act. 
And instead of taking responsibility for our sins against God and turning to God in repentance of our sins, we, we sometimes are quick to get angry. You know, we, we are quick to, to point the finger and we start to blame others and, and other things for the problems that start to take place in our lives. You know, we turn from looking inward for blame and we blame everybody and everything that's outside of us. This, brothers and sisters, is what Ahab was doing in this story. You know, he's blaming Elijah for all the problems that he and the rest of the people of Israel are facing at this time. How quick are we sometimes to blame other people and other things for the problems in our lives when it's really our own sins and our own rebellion against God and his ways that brought about the problems in our lives? You know, we really got to think about that. So Ahab, he doesn't realize or maybe he doesn't want to realize because sometimes that can be the case, too. We just don't even want to realize it. We don't even want to talk about our issues that we're having with God and just our faith in God. But, you know, he either doesn't realize or maybe he doesn't want to realize that the lack of rain is a direct consequence of the idolatry that Ahab had introduced, promoted and encouraged in Israel. And again, according to first Kings chapter one or chapter 18, verse one, Elijah, he was going to announce, hey, guys, the drought is over. But because God sees that Ahab and, and pretty much all of Israel don't see their sin of idolatry, like they just don't get it. God decides to use his prophet Elijah to help Ahab and the people of Israel to see and know that the Lord is God. He wants to sort out this mess that the people of Israel are in once and for all. And so, you know, Elijah then goes on to tell King Ahab, according to uh, first Kings chapter 18, verse 19 through 20. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Esherah that eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. So Ahab agrees to summon all the people of Israel to Mount Carmel. The entire nation gathers together, perhaps nearing one million people or perhaps over one million people. We don't know. They all come together. Joining them also were the 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, recruited by Jezebel in keeping with her wicked agenda. And while Elijah is having everyone there, he's, he's got everyone there. Elijah, he starts things off by asking everyone in attendance this question. He said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Now, in preparing this sermon, I discovered that the Hebrew word that translates into our English word waver could also be translated as limping. The ESV says it this way. How long will you go limping? Between two different opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is, then follow him. Now, immediately, I thought, boy, can I relate to the idea of limping? <laughs> you know, exhibit A right here, my broken foot. You know, my foot has left me limping for the last several weeks. And, and I can't wait to get to my routine of just jumping rope and just getting on the treadmill, working out, doing all of those things. It's just not, I've not been motivated because I got a, my boot and my foot and, you know, so... Only until it heals properly can I get back to doing those things, right? I got to follow the doctor's orders, and some of you have told me that. I'm hearing you. All right. <laughs> so, but until then, I go on limping, right? I limped over here to the podium. And in my frustration, I just, I keep asking, how long? You know, that was my first question and my repeated question on the day that I went to the doctor who confirmed that my foot was broken. 
How long, Doc? How, how long do I got to wear this boot? You know, how long? And in the same way, brothers and sisters, God, through the prophet, prophet Elijah, was asking the people of Israel that same question. How long? How long will you go limping between gods? The fact of the matter is that their relationship with God was broken. My foot was broken. Their relationship with God was broken. And as a result, God couldn't do the things that he wanted to do with them and through them. You know, they weren't being the great nation that he had set apart for himself in order to be a blessing to the rest of the world. Why? Because their relationship with God was broken and it was only until they healed their relationship with God that they could get back to being what God wanted them to be in the world. But until then, they were going to go on limping their way through life. You know, this is Young's literal translation of the Bible. Uh, of 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, but it actually reads, till when are ye leaping on the two branches? <laughs> what? <laughs> till when are ye leaping on the two branches? But the, the image here is of a bird that can't decide where to perch. <laughs> the bird can't si decide where to perch. When it came to the people of Israel, they couldn't decide where to perch themselves as far as their faith. You know, and understand that it's not that they had completely rejected having faith in God. Like they still wanted to worship God. Rather, it's that they were double minded in who they should put their faith in and their trust in or who they should find security. in. they were double minded about that. You know, and because they were not walking confidently with God and according to this, his ways, they were limping their way through life. And God, through the prophet of Elijah, the prophet Elijah, he essentially brought them to a fork in the road. What, what do I mean by a fork in the road? In other words, God got them to a point where he was wanting them to make a decision and to choose which direction they want to go with their lives, because they were trying to go in two different directions at the same time. You know, they were trying to follow God and they were trying to follow Baal. They were trying to keep their identity as believers in Yahweh as God, but they were also very, very drawn to following the ways of Baal. So God through Elijah was asking the people of Israel a really important question. And I think this is a really important question for some of us as Christians today to ask ourselves as well. You know, how long will you go limping between two opinions? You know, this is a rhetorical question, but how many of us know that we're not walking confidently with God and according to his ways? You know, how many of us Christians know that, that we are basically limping our way through life? We're, we're a Christian, but we're kind of limping our way through life. And why is that the case? Because we're trying to go in two different directions with our lives at the same time. You know, we are trying to follow God as Christians, and we're trying to follow the current idols of today. Now, let me take a moment to talk about some of the current idols of today. Can I, can I try and put on my best prophet interpretation this morning? I want to try to do that a little bit. Truth be told, a lot of people today tend to think of the sin of idolatry or idol worship as being a thing of the past or something that's amongst Eastern religions. You know, we tend to not think that we have modern day idols in Western culture, but idols are very present in our culture. You know, part of the reason we as Christians don't think of I think we worship idols today is because of our definition of our definition of idol is off. And so here you go. Here's a helpful definition. An idol is when something or someone becomes more important to us than God. An idol is when something or someone becomes more important to us than God. You know, that's what the idol of Baal was becoming and in some cases had become for the people of Israel. You know, he was becoming more important to them than God. 
Moreover, by that definition, even good things can become idols, right? You know, when we make them the most important thing in our lives. Anything or anyone can become an idol if we place the value of that thing or that person above our value for God. And if we're being honest, the list of people and the list of things that becomes more important to us than God today, even as Christians, can be a pretty long list, right? So, so what are a list of some of the modern day idols that we can worship today? And to be clear, this is not a list of things that we should and can rid ourselves of totally. You know, truth be told, that will be impossible. But the point of this list that I'm going to kind of go through is to encourage each of us to evaluate our lives in order to make sure that none of these things have become more important to us than God. Amen? You know, again, even a good thing can become more important to us than God, and ultimately that thing could jeopardize our relationship with God. So again, what are a list of some of the modern day idols that we can worship today? First and foremost, I think identity. You know, our desire for identity might be one of the biggest idols that we as people today worship. You know, people have largely abandoned their identity as being someone who was created in the image of God. And we've placed our identity in other things. You know, whether it be our social media following, our position at work, our abilities slash skills or or the achievements that we are after. You know, many people have their identity wrapped up in the wrong thing. And the reality is that their identities or whatever it is that they place their identity in has become an idol. And if we're being honest, That's a really rough way to live, (laughs) you know, because if your identity is your work, if our identity is our skill, our looks or anything else, we'll constantly feel that we don't measure up. Right. You know, someone once said worshiping the idol of identity is a harsh master (laughs) versus finding our identity in God. But how many of us are drawn to follow the idol of identity or how about the idol of money? The pursuit of money and the the acquisition of things with money is a guiding force for many. Thus, the idol of money is an idol for many. You know, and and understand, you know, you don't have to have lots of money for money to be your idol. (laughs) You don't have a lot. You don't have to have a lot of money. You know, it's not about what you have. It's about what you long to have. For the rich, the poor and those in between, money can be an idol that quickly entraps us. You know, now, now don't get me wrong. Money is not bad. And and in fact, one of the most misquoted verses of the Bible is first Timothy chapter six, verse 10, in in which people think it says money is the root of all evil. Rather, first Timothy chapter six, verse 10 reads for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. You know, we must remember that money is a tool. You know, and like any tool, we have to use it correctly. Otherwise, it can cause much damage to ourselves, other people and other things. Money isn't the problem. It's how we use it and view it that can become a problem. And it will become a problem for any of us if we put our hope and our trust in it instead of hoping and trusting in God. You know, truth be told, all of us know people who have placed their hope and trust in money. You know, they've trusted in it and they've trusted in it to to provide for them, take care of them and even protect them. Because they got money. But the problem is money can't and will never live up to what we are trying to get from it. It just won't live up to what we're trying to get from it. So why as Christians is making money the most important thing for some of us? You know, why is it that some of us Christians don't bother to give back to God what is actually God's to begin with? That's right. 
But some of us, we don't give back. You know, some of us in this room haven't given in months. Some of us haven't given in years. Why is it that some of us Christians don't bother to give back to God what is actually God's to begin with? You know, which is an easy segue for me to talk about the idol of jobs slash careers. You know, jobs slash careers used to just be a means to an end. For most people throughout history, it was just what you did to provide for your family. Now, what we do is our jobs and our careers has become who we are. You know, as, as, as of today, jobs and, job, job and career dissatisfaction is at an all-time high. Like, it's just, people are just not satisfied. People are like, quiet quitting. I'm like, what is quiet quitting? You know, but, but could it be because we've elevated what we do as our jobs and our careers to who we are? In fact, I'd say one of the biggest forms of idol worship that God sees going on with people today, even among Christians, centers around the jobs and careers we have and the positions we hold. And I say that going back to the definition of what an idol is. An idol is when something or someone becomes more important to us than God. As a Christian, would God say that your job is more important to you than him? That's between you and God. Just like Elijah was like, hey, Ahab, this is between you and Yahweh. You know, or how about the, the, the idol of sex and pornography? You know, truth be told, I think sex might be the only thing that we think about more than money. It's everywhere in our culture, and I mean everywhere. You know, the reality is that we have taken a gift from God, which is sex, and made it into an idol in our lives. You know, for many people, even Christians, their lives are controlled by sex. And now we are at a place in society where to even question the sexual ethics of people in our society will result in outrage and and defensiveness, showing how bound people actually are to the idol of sex. Now people's sexual identity, sexual practices, sex-filled lives are what's sacred to them now. Not God. People's sexual identity, sexual practices, and sex-filled lives are what's sacred to them. Which has resulted in so many people, even Christians, engaging in illicit sex, adultery, rape, prostitution, same-sex attraction, and the horrors of sex trafficking. That's becoming a big deal. And as we all know, the most powerful of addictions in the the modern world is pornography. The pornography industry makes more money than the NFL, the NBA, and the MLB combined, and more than NBC, CBS, and ABC combined. At any given second of the day, there are more than three million people watching pornography. Right now, as I speak, three million people are watching pornography. Many women, Many men, women, and young people, and even children are slaves to this idol. And I could go on, brothers and sisters, because I don't have that time. (laughs) You know, I could go on to talk about the idol of comfort. Man, that's the idol that some of us try to go after and worship, because we want comfort. The idol of comfort, the idol of entertainment, the idol of phones and technology. Oh my goodness, we could talk about that, right? The idol of influence and fame, and even the idol of family and children. Granted, none of us today are worshiping Baal, Idol worship, brothers and sisters, is still present and active. It is still present and active. But the problem is that we just don't recognize them for who they are. Now, let me reiterate one more time. This isn't a list of things to avoid, although some things on this list should be avoided, for sure. (laughs) I'm saying, yes, some things. 
Um, but neither is this a list to use to beat ourselves down or, or to use this ammo to shoot at others. This is a list that, this is a list of things that can take place, take the place of the importance of God in our lives. Just like Baal was taking the place of the importance of God in the lives of the people of Israel, which is why God, he asks the people of Israel and why he's also asking us today this very question. Again, he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if and you fill in the blank is then follow him. The contemporary English version of the Bible actually reads, how much longer will you try to have things both ways? <laughs> if the Lord is God, worship him. But if and you fill in the blank is God, worship him. Truth be told, God sees how some of us Christians, we're trying to have it both ways. He sees that. But God says we can't have it both ways. You know, Jesus said it best, according to Matthew six, verse 24 from the Bible. No one can serve two masters at the same time. You will hate one of them and love the other or you will be faithful to one and dislike the other. You can't serve God and money or self-identity or job and career or sexual addiction. Emphasis mine, obviously, at the same time. God calls all of us to make a decision on what's most important to us. He's like, hey, make a decision. Don't be don't be like this. And not only that, he also wants us to understand the consequences of making people and things out to be more important um, to us than him. You know, if we make our professional success our God, we will never achieve enough. <laughs> if we make our status and appearance our God, we will hide our insecurities behind clothes and other material possessions. If we make our money our God, we will be anxious of losing it and ever striving to make more. You know, if we make our spouses, our children or our grandchildren, our God, we will be controlled by their happiness. If we make religious performance, our God. There will be a persistent feeling of anxiety that Man, I'm just not good enough. <laughs> right. You know, there are consequences to us not putting our faith and trust in the true and living God. Nevertheless, every day, brothers and sisters, God, he gives us the choice. Hey, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal or whatever else is, go ahead and follow him. But just don't go limping between two opinions. God is like, you, got, you can't ride the fence. So as I close, I want to encourage you to, to do this. I want to encourage you to prayerfully evaluate your life and, and use this list as a guide to help you. You know, ask yourself, what's an idol in my life? What's an idol in my life? And to further help you answer that question, here's some, some more questions you can ask yourselves to help identify potential idols in your life. You know, you can ask yourself, whoop, what happened? I pressed it twice. You can ask yourself, where do I spend my time? You know, where, where do I spend my time? Where do I spend my money? You know, where do I get my joy? You know, what's always on my mind? Actually think about these questions. You know, they will lead you to knowing what either is an idol in your life or what you might be tempted to make as an idol in your life. You know, spend time in prayer asking and seeking out any idols in your life. You know, idol worship today might look different, but it still exists. You know, we shouldn't let anything, even a good thing, take the place of God in our life. Instead, we need to know that the Lord is God. And I wanted to close with Psalm 100. You know, from the Bible, which it reads, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs as we did today and know that the Lord is God. It is he who has made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations.
So brothers and sisters, this is part one. <laughs> and if given the chance, I'll do part two. I don't know when that's going to happen. In the next section, you see about how God helped the, Israel, uh, the Israelites come to know that he is God through amazing things that he did through the prophet Elijah. And he helps us to know that he is God through that example. And so amen, brothers and sisters, and to God be the glory. Thank you, TJ. That was, uh, I, don't, I don't need to say much other than um, I was really inspired and convicted. Uh, for myself, I thought, when, when do I think about God? Hopefully it's all the time, you know, not every second. It would be nice to think about him every second, but that he's on my heart all day long as I make life decisions. As I journey through life, I prayerfully think about him and what distracts me from thinking about him. You know, and, you know, I think one of the idol worships that are tempting today is our own personal worldview of the, of the way we think things should be in life, the way we think society should be. And we spend a lot of time thinking about society and the way the world should be and et cetera, when really that worldview is so diverse in this group all over the place. But when we think about what God wants the world to be like, that's, we're all pretty much in sync on that. He wants us to be people who are deeply in love with him and deeply in love with each other. That we think, you know, I think about, I'm in a relationship with my wife and I have been since 1985 when we started dating in November of 85, 38 years ago. And I think about her all the time. You know, and I've been in a relationship with God. It's coming on 40 years here in a few days. And I've thought about God every one of those 40 years, of uh, every day of those 40 years. And yet there are times when I feel empty inside. There are times when I feel like something's got, gotten in the way. And it isn't very hard to figure out if I'm in sync with God or not. Because I can just take, like, where is my joy? Where is my peace? Where is my happiness? What is distracting me from being joyful, being at peace, and being happy? Yeah, life happens. Pain comes in our life, tragedies, things you can't control, hardships. But sometimes we bring those hardships on ourselves. Probably more often than not hardships come. And discipline isn't as if God is, you know, he's trying to punish us, but he's trying to get our attention. He allows hardships to get our attention. So again, sometimes those are brought on by life. You can't control them. But the ones brought on by yourself, God wants to get your attention with those. You know, I always tell guys who are struggling with pornography and women, if you're struggling with pornography, get a flip phone, get not, don't watch TV and get off your computer. Because you can't struggle and don't go watch movies, don't watch TV, don't buy magazines, get rid of all social media in your life. And you can still struggle with lust, but you're going to have less temptation. And most people go, that would be stupid. I mean, I've got to have my phone for work. I've got to have my computer for work. And people then say why they need their idols in their life to help them to live life. Because those things be, become an, it becomes a real quick idol when something is destroying your life, but you won't get rid of it. You know, 
The Bible says, but that's, God doesn't really want us to be that radical, right, in dealing with idols. If your eye causes you to sin, tell your eye, stop it, right? No, it says gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, slap it. No, cut it off. I once had a sister go, my, my husband's looking at pornography, I want to divorce him. And I go, what, what, like a, what, what do you mean? She goes, yeah, he's, he's committing adultery. And I go, she goes, the Bible says if your eyes cause you to sin, if you look at another woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her, so you should, I'm going to divorce him. And I'm like, why do you have hands? She goes, what do you mean? I said, have you sinned with your hands since you became a Christian? She goes, yes. I said, why, do, why didn't you cut them off? I said, the point obviously is not, not to cut our hands off and gouge our eyes out, but it is to be radical about dealing with idols that are in our life. You know, and I appreciate TJ laid it out for us today. Let's make sure, don't give Satan a foothold to take your joy and your happiness and your peace and your ability to love God and one another by allowing idols to exist in your life. Let's be people who say, hey, I'll do whatever it takes to stay in love with God.